This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Vandana Singh discusses her new collection, Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot reviews the latest news from Barnes & Noble. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. Well, there's not a lot happening this week. Uh, we over here have a new number two. At number one, Kristen Hanna's The Great Alone is still holding steady, as it was last week. Just below it, um, outsold by only a few hundred copies, is 50-50, James Patterson writing with Candace Fox. This is the first time I can remember that a James Patterson book has debuted not at number one. Oh, wow. Uh, I think this is, uh, I'm not saying it's never happened, but right. off the top of my head, it seems a little unusual. This is the second book in the Detective Harriet Blue series, and uh, in this case, Sam Blue stands accused of the brutal mu- murders of three young students, and the only person who believes he's innocent is his sister, Detective Harriet Blue, so she's determined to clear his name. And so this is, the, as I said, the second book in the series, sold just under 23,000 mm. copies in print, according to NPD BookScan. Um, again, I feel like that's kind of a low showing for James Patterson. So uh, I'm not sure whether it's this particular series, this particular co-author, The Hands of Fate. Don't know. Oh, right. And then uh, a little ways below that, at number eight, Mark Greeney's Agent in Place. We gave this a starred review. Uh, it stars uh, erstwhile CIA operative Court Gentry, who's now a freelance mercenary. And this is the seventh novel in the Gray Man series, uh, which we say is excellent. So Gentry first has to kidnap the mistress of Syria's president uh, to enlist her aid in toppling the murderous regime and then rescue her infant son who was left behind in Damascus. And we say that Greeny's steady escalation of the risks and the exceedingly clever ways that court tackles them make this entry in the exemplary Gray Man series a can't miss. Oh, great. Just uh, down at the end of the list, number 18, Sunburn by Laura Lippman. We also gave this a starred mm. review. Uh, it's set in Delaware in 1995. We say it is a scorching tale of the gray area among betrayal, lust, and murder, uh, which we said will resonate with fans of James M. Cain's work. And uh, a woman walks out on her husband and young daughter during their beach vacation, literally walks to the next town over and gets a job waitressing at a diner. And uh, we say that Lippmann ratches up the suspense the way the mercury in a thermometer creeps up on a hot August day until everything, including carefully laid plans of revenge and redemption, comes to a boiling point. This is Lippmann at her observant, fiercest best, a force to be reckoned with in crime fiction. Great. Rave review there. uh, Definitely worth checking out. And uh, finally, just below that uh, on the list, just wanted to note, uh, always interesting when a uh, comics collection yes. hits the bestseller list yeah. at number 19, we have White Sand Volume 2, uh, written by Brandon Sanderson, and then uh, with the illustrations by Julius Gopez, 
and uh, Rick Hoskin. And this is continuing the White Sand series. Um, Definitely not a good starting point for new readers, but uh, nice to see a hardcover collection pegging on onto the the bestseller list. Not not a thing that happens a lot for comics. And uh, Sanderson's a major, major, major name in epic fantasy, but he's still kind of making his mark in the comics world. So it looks like that's continuing to go well. No, that's great. And what's happening in nonfiction? So at number four, we have a memoir called Educated by Tara Westover. And uh, here, uh, Westover uh, recounts her upbringing with uh, six siblings on an Idaho farm, which is uh, run and dominated by her father, who's a devout Mormon with a paranoid streak, who uh, is hoping to keep his family off the grid. And so they've got four children, including the author. So and this is a pretty intense book about what happens. And we say Westover's vivid prose makes this saga of pressures of conformity and self-assertion that warp a family seem both terrifying and ordinary. So uh, this is this is it. Number four, just jump right up there. Number 12, we have a diet book, The 10-Day Belly Slim Down, Lose Your Belly, Heal Your Gut, Enjoy a Lighter, Younger You by Kellyanne Petrucci. Uh, She's the author of Dr. Kellyanne's Bone Broth Diet. And uh, I think a lot of people have been talking about bone broths. Uh, Number 15, another diet book, Dr. Colbert's uh, Keto Zone Diet, Burn Fast, Balance Appetite Hormones, and Lose Weight by Don Colbert. And finally, at number 19, we We have a science book called The Future of Humanity, Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth by Michio Kaku. Uh, Kaku is a theoretical physicist. And here we say Kaku wonderfully illuminates possible ways that the human race could survive on other planets. Given Kaku's track record of best-selling popular science books, this work, too, should go far, which we predicted. And it looks like it is uh, on the bestseller list. So we got that right. All the way to the stars. All the way. All the way to the stars. (laughs) I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rattel, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Vandana Singh tells us when a story is more than just a story. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Apricot Irving. I'm the author of The Gospel of Trees, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Vandana Singh on the line. Her new book is Ambiguity, Machines, and Other Stories. Hi, Vandana. So glad you could join us. Hello, everybody, and I'm very honored to be on the air with you. Well, so your stories uh, here take place in the near future, as well as to eras and times far away. Tell us a little bit about this conceit. Tell us about the uh, the idea of your stories. Well, it's it's hard to summarize, but I love uh, playing with time, and uh, you know, I love trying to see whether there's a way to get beyond linear time. You know, and uh, of course, our minds are amazing time machines. So I like to employ my brain, uh, my storytelling brain, as a time machine um, that goes not just forward and backward but also in uh, directions that are kind of off a linear time axis. So so I guess, uh, you know, all is grist to the science fictional writer's mill, right? So we look at far futures, we look at near futures, and we look at futures that can't possibly exist or perhaps have a low probability of existing. So, So all is play. And you're a physicist. How does that influence the ways that you write about time? 
Uh, well, that plays into pretty much everything I write in in fiction because you can't really, at least I can't really separate the two when I'm in my writerly mode. Um, so, so certainly with regard to time, you know, we know that time is very mysterious. Time is is a very slippery concept, and uh, we know that in part through physics because uh, we know that you know our the the passing of the passage of time. Uh, the time between events depends on how fast you're going, how close you are to a to a very uh, you know a massive gravitational uh, celestial object, and so on and so forth. And the universe is is much stranger than than you know we can imagine. So so for me to play with time is to indulge in uh, kind of physics thought experiments as much as it it is to indulge in the great what-if questions that we ask as human beings, as earthlings, as social beings. And so your your stories contain elements of, of science, as we spoke about, but also you just mentioned humanism. Uh, tell us about your inspiration. Um, well, I think it's uh, partly because of the way I was raised and where I was raised. Uh, I was born and brought up in India um, through my young adulthood, and still have extremely strong connections there. Um, so, uh, and and you know, one of the things about growing up there, and also growing up in a family, and I'm talking about not just parents and siblings, but aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, the whole, the whole uh, shebang, uh, where uh, a kind of uh, what you might call a Renaissance approach to the to learning was encouraged. Um, so it was very hard to draw hard boundaries between things. Um, so, uh, for instance, in my family, literature and art and social justice and science, you know, they, all of these things were spoken about and uh, people were interested in all these things. So it led to a kind of way of looking at the world that was a kind of, uh, if I can invent a word, a multi-ocular vision. <laughs> um, so, uh, and so therefore, I can never truly, truly separate in my storytelling brain, uh, let's say, the physical aspect of the universe and the way humans interact with the universe, but also the way humans interact with the other, whether that other is a different kind of human or an alien or, uh, or you know, a, a non-human, an earthling or a being from another planet. Tell us a little bit also about how place influences your stories, because reading through them, I was struck by a very strong sense of place. For example, uh, in the story with Fate Conspire, it's very much about mm -hmm. where one is and where one remembers being and where one longs to be. Yeah, um, well, that is a very insightful read of that story, uh, because... Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, something of an accidental immigrant, and uh, I I feel like I have a sense of I definitely have a sense of belonging here, uh, and I think it was uh, I forget which writer, so I shouldn't uh, quote from memory, but uh, I remember a famous writer saying that uh, the global uh, human uh, citizen really doesn't have one root but many roots. But you can think of the main root as the place where you were born and raised, and that's your. It's like rather like the banyan tree, uh, that has a great central trunk and then has many, many, many trunks that go down around it. So my great central trunk is India and my Indian upbringing, and also 
the sense of place that I had when I was there, but also uh, my longing for uh, a sense of place and to try to imagine a sense of place for my characters comes from my understanding of and, uh, you know, increasingly critique of modernity because we are such uprooted people, you know, we who are uh, the citizens of uh, modern industrial civilization are typically such uprooted people that we've forgotten what it means to truly belong. And so I'm always looking for a way to anchor myself or my characters uh, to a place to really feel the the physical context, the the, the human context, the non-human context of a place. Uh, so, so yes, the longing part is definitely part of it. But also I bemoan uh, the fact that we have gotten so untethered to localness uh, in, you know, the mad rush that is uh, modern industrial civilization. So in a sense, I'm trying to, like, bring that to the reader through the story. So you, you talked about growing up in India, but now, at least currently, you live in the Boston area. How much mm-hmm. d- does place in either place, India or Boston or wherever, physical place, play in your, your stories, or, or at least in the inspiration for your stories? Um, well, I think that, um, you know, I, I try to, so this is, I'm trying to think about uh, how to say 5,000 things at once in an <laughs> abbreviated way, but... Uh, uh, one way to think about it is this, that, uh, you know, when we are conscious of place, then we have a sense of belonging. Uh, and that belonging need not be necessarily even belonging to a social group, but belonging to the earth itself in that particular place. And so um, one, of the, uh, one of the kinds of visions that physics lends us, for example, is that if you have this open receptivity to nature, to the world around you, then it starts to speak to you. You know, like if I'm walking through, let's say in the winter, walking through a snowfall, um, and the snow is falling down, and I'm looking up, and I'm, uh, you know, conscious of the beauty of it, and how how the snow uh, snowflakes, because of their shape, absorb sound, and so everything is hushed. But I also watch the snowflakes coming down, and I wonder, you know, uh, about their journey speeding down from the clouds and then gradually stopping accelerating, you know, as and then floating or coasting down and then little eddies moving them about and how they inscribe themselves on the trees and how when you look at the trees and you might see more of a deposit of snow on one side than the other, that tells you something. The wind is telling you something. It's telling you something about how this, the wind blew the snow. So nature speaks to us when we pay attention like that. And it can make a walk in the park an extraordinary experience. So part of what physics has given me is the, is the conviction that there's nothing that's truly ordinary, that imbued in the most, uh, you know, apparently ordinary circumstance is uh, something extraordinary. It's nature speaking or conversing, and we are then interacting with nature. So um, I, I'm not sure if that answers your question very well, but... Uh, Certainly, that's, uh, that sense of place, uh, both in terms of the social place and the, and the place that is, that nature, uh, you know, uh, gives us when we are paying attention, that sense of belonging we get from paying attention to our environment. That is something that, uh, that I live every day, and I also, uh, so inevitably, I write about it. This feels to me like, like your own version of Newton with the apple. 
of of his <laughs> his physics coming from his natural environment, but uh, but maybe a little gentler. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that uh, one difference might be that there is a state uh, before you notice the significance of the apple falling on your head and you look at the moon in the sky and you realize that they're both saying the same thing. Um, and that place is a place where you're not trying to deliberately solve a problem or looking for uh, an answer, but you have this kind of uh, non-judgmental receptivity. And I find interestingly in both science and in art, at least the art of writing, that um, that state of uh, openness and receptivity to the world around you uh, actually, that's what feeds my creative part, both in the science and the arts. You talk about social place as well as physical place. Let's talk about the social aspects of these stories. One of the things that we mentioned in our review, our starred review of your collection, um, is that your characters are often bright, passionate women in middle life, drift, driven by some kind of art or science or cause, and in no way defined by their relationships with men. And that's uh, obviously breaking a little bit from science fiction's conventions over the years. Um, tell mm -hmm. us about that choice. Uh, well, uh, I think in part it was not so much a choice as something that I naturally feel interested in writing about. Uh, but looking back, um, I see that, uh, you know, in a sense what I'm trying to do is fill a, fill a void because as you just pointed out, um, you know, and there's a very famous essay by Ursula Le Guin um, about the lack of a, the Mrs. Brown character in science fiction, you know, the ordinary, everyday, overlooked, middle-aged woman. And um, it's been an interesting experience for me coming into middle age and then sensing the kind of invisibility that comes with it. And uh, in one sense, it doesn't bother me because, you know, my favorite place is under my rock. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, um, the fact that, uh, you know, firstly, there's gender and then secondly, there's this ageism thing that happens. Um, that really interests me because... Uh, in my life and, uh, you know, in other places, I have found that women in middle age and women in old age are some of the most uh, clear, intelligent, fierce, passionate people. It's, it's almost as though, you know, their intelligence and their sense of freedom and their boldness increases uh, as they age. And uh, so, so you know, that's something I've been very interested in exploring. I see it around me as a phenomenon, and yet nobody acknowledges uh, these women. Sometimes they're, they're, even their existence is barely acknowledged. So I wanted to honor that. I wanted to honor that, you know, women and that, at that stage of life still have something to give and, in fact, have more to give than anyone might imagine. Um, so, so, you know, uh, for example, just to just to take my own experience, that um, I think I, when I was younger, I held back on my ideas too much. I didn't have a lot of confidence in a lot of things. Uh, there was a certain, um, you know, I had a kind of intellectual boldness, but I kept that hidden more uh, than I do now. And uh, there were things that didn't make as much sense because I didn't know enough or wasn't mature enough or didn't make enough connections. And so I feel that uh, we can actually grow more in our old age if we honor uh, you know, and try to uh, honor who we are and honor our potential and also learn from our lives. And I've, I've consistently tried to do that with my life. And so uh, in fiction, I do believe that um, if we explore these, these 
I, I don't know if you'd call it a gap in the lit- literature or whatever, but some, those gaps are some of the most interesting places, the overlooked areas, the overlooked peoples, the overlooked relationships. And so I was drawn naturally, naturally to this. So I, I'd love to uh, jump into one of the stories, um, or, or maybe a couple of them. Uh, one I had in mind is With Fate uh, Conspire, in which uh, Gargi, or Gargi, who's taken from Gargi, Gargi yeah. because, uh, from Slum Life because of uh, her ability to use a device that lets her look through time. Tell us about Gargi, this device, and the, the setting of the story. Gargi is is a woman who, um, like she says herself in the story, which I don't have in front of me right now, but something to the effect that, you know, she's a woman of no account. She was born and bred in the, in the you know, back alleys of the city of Kolkata. And, uh, and then this peculiar circumstance causes her to uh, be in a place of importance for this group of scientists. So I wanted to... Um, fashion, uh, or I guess what happened was it was not a deliberate thing, you know, like uh, in many of my stories, a character walks into my head. And so I heard the very strong voice of this character. And uh, and the thing about Gargi was that I didn't know her name first, but there's another character in the story called Rasundari, and she's a historical character. She's this amazing woman, a housewife who lived in Bengal, in the state of Bengal, in India of the 1850s, and had no formal education. And although she was of, from a well-off family, and uh, you know, women weren't expected to learn to read and so on, especially in the upper class families where they were they were kind of um, sequestered away. Um, and she learned, she taught herself how to read by essentially spying on her children's, her son's lessons. And she would uh, trace out the letters in, in uh, uh, the wood ash of the stove. And she eventually ended up writing her own um, autobiography. And it's one of the most remarkable stories I've read about, and I've read extracts from her autobiography as well. So I knew that somewhere Rasundari was speaking to me, and I wanted to write a story about her. So when I started to write about Gargi, I didn't know that Rasundari would show up. And once Rasundari showed up, and Gargi really wanted to learn how to read and write, then uh, it was then that Gargi's name came to be, uh, because uh, there was a time in ancient India when... uh, there was, as far as my understanding of ancient history goes, uh, a lot more of an egalitarian relationship between men and women. So some of the most ancient uh, scriptures from India, religious texts, the Vedas, some of the authors of the Vedas are women. And yet later on, when um, you know, when the caste system came to be and uh, things became much more rigid, and when gender boundaries, you know, became very hard, then uh, women were not allowed to recite the Vedas. Uh, or to read the Vedas, even though women had been the authors. And one of the authors of the Vedas was a woman called Gargi. And so it came to me later on that, you know, that my character had to be called Gargi uh, to honor my, like, way, 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 way back ancestor who was called Gargi and who wrote verses in the Vedas. Um, so so uh, uh, that that story is is one of the very important stories to me where, I am conversing with my own, uh, you know, my own uh, history and culture and heritage and uh, having this conversation and interacting with people from the past that I wish I'd known, you know. So, um, and Gargi was my medium for that. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. 
Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Vandana Singh, author of Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories. And one of those stories, you were talking about this character who was your lens and your way of conversing with the past. But that's also something that that character does very directly. She she views the past and then she tries to communicate with people in the past. And she also has the voice in her head of um, a man who she thinks is is a dead man, a ghost. How does that all sort of wrap up together? Does it does it serve as a as a metaphor for the writer's art? I thought it was a really interesting choice, uh, particularly as the story to open the collection. Um, yeah, it's it's very strange. You know, writing is such a mysterious process uh, that. Uh, uh, that you know, I'm not sure that the writer is the best person to answer that question. But um, <laughs> it's it's kind of only looking back that you see, uh, and sometimes with the help of other people, how the how it all ties up. Uh, and uh, in part, the, one of the things, one of the threads that went into the making of the story is uh, the issue of climate change and sea level rise. And we know that uh, that the the delta. Uh, you know, of uh, Bangladesh, of West Bengal, and the city of Kolkata uh, itself are threatened by uh, sea level rise. And so we are making a world that uh, inadvertently, uh, you know, modern industrial civilization uh, and the powers, the powers that uh, control it are making a world that I don't think uh, most of us want. And, uh, and the people who are the least consulted in this mega project of the powerful are people like Gargi. And so uh, one of the things that's very important to me is to give um, a voice to those who are powerless, but with as much respect and with complete uh, admission of the fact that, in a sense, I don't have the right to speak for them. Uh, And yet, you know, part of the joy of fiction and the challenge of fiction is to extend ourselves beyond who we are. Uh, and however imperfectly we do it, to try to stand in the shoes of somebody else. So that aspect is very important to me. And at the same time, uh, the the uh, what's coming to us, the, the the aspect of climate change that we know we cannot prevent, uh, the sea level rise aspect particularly, which is something I also uh, work on in my academic life. I work on the... Uh, on the climate change science and how it intersects with pedagogy and with other disciplines. Um, so that's always in my head all the time. Um, so that inevitably got caught up into the story and this idea of, well, who makes, who made the world, the world that we live in now? It certainly was not with our permission, like with people like you and me, and uh, even less so with people like Gargi, and even less so with other species that, uh, that live in the world with us. Poetry is also an important part of the story and uh, of a few of your other stories. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I grew up in a culture that is, uh, you know, where poetry is a big deal. And the poetry that I grew up with 
was both, you know, spoken poetry and musical poetry in this in the sense of lyrics of songs, you know, classic Bollywood songs. Um, I'm also trained in uh, Indian vocal classical music of the northern tradition. Um, so, so lyrics as poetry and words as poetry, something that I uh, that is part of the culture. And so, growing up, you know, you'd uh, one of the my earliest memories is um, listening to. Uh, music in the early morning from my grandmother's radio and uh and you know uh it was it was sung uh, music traditional music and uh, the words were poetic and then also we go to the vegetable market and you know the radio is playing bollywood songs you know and the songs many of them particularly the old ones are truly lyrical and poetic and then there was also the fact that you know uh when our uh well the great epics are written in poetry uh, the uh, my mother tells me, although I never had this experience myself, that uh, when she was a kid uh, in her school learning multiplication tables, you actually sang them out uh, as though it was sung poetry. Uh, and that, I thought, was really fascinating when I was a kid and she used to tell me stories of her youth. Uh, so it's something that's so a part of my life. It was actually a bit of a shock to when I first came to the U.S. as a graduate student um, to realize that uh, Americans, at least in my anecdotal experience, seem to be deeply suspicious of poetry, especially if they were in the sciences. Um, because to me, like a lot of my reference in my day-to-day world, you know, if I come across some situation or I think of something, there's usually some kind of poetic line or something that speaks to that. So I don't know how people get by without poetry, honestly. And there was a time when it was different uh, for people of European descent as well. Uh, in fact, and people from um, Western civilization, I would say, because, uh, you know, not too long ago, uh, the great physicists were not ashamed to call themselves poets. I believe James Clark Maxwell, who came up with the laws of electromagnetism, was proud of being a poet as well. So we live in this peculiar age where we have these false dichotomies. You know, you have the sciences on one side and arts and humanities on the other, and you have equations on one side and poetry on the other. And uh, I, I just don't don't uh, recognize those those gaps and abysses. I prefer to soar above them. So, what does the uh, ambiguity machines of the title mean? Um, well, they refer to the story of that name in the in the volume, um, and in in the story, which is called Ambiguity Machines and Examination. Ambiguity machines are machines that blur boundaries, and um, and in that story, there are three connected stories that are kind of braided together, and each sub-story has a different kind of ambiguity machine. Uh, which blurs a different kind of boundary. So um, I was playing with this idea of uh, machines that blur boundaries, and that's how the name came up. Uh, although looking back, I think somebody else pointed this out to me, that um, that many of my stories feature devices that blur boundaries and of some kind or the other. So so I guess, I mean, that's the, that's the definition, but uh, in my head, but what it means to other people is something that I'd be very interested in hearing about because, after all, the story, once it goes out into the world, does not belong to me. It belongs to the reader, in a sense. Um, so, like, for example, one friend of mine who's a scholar of literature, professor of literature, uh, said that 
to her, a story itself is an ambiguity machine. And um, um. I'm still trying to unpack that. <laughs> In one of your stories, uh, in Samadeva, a Sky River Sutra, uh, you, you resurrect an 11th century poet and, uh, he goes off to, to live among the stars. Um, and, uh, and he tells stories about what he sees there. And at one point, someone says, what does that mean? And he says, sometimes stories are just stories. Uh, so tell us, uh, a little bit about, your stories when they're just stories and when they're something more? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to uh, see if Somadeva can inspire me to answer. Um, I think that uh, I think that there's a kind of irreducibility to stories, at least the best stories, which I aspire to write and don't necessarily always succeed. But uh, that irreducibility is when a story is a story. Yes, you can take a lot from the story. You can look at metaphors. You can look at what the story means to you, what it's trying to say, how the threads are connected. And yet, um, all of that analysis is uh, secondary to the story itself. And in other words, uh, the map of the story, the best map of the story is the story. Uh, so if a story in my mind, uh, if a story is successful or if it's a good story, what that means is that it, it has an irreducibility. It's not pure allegory, for instance, where, you know, you don't have each character standing for something. You can't just simply uh, use a reductionist, uh, for lack of a better term, a Newtonian analysis to the story. So, in other words, to echo Aristotle, who said this, uh, you know, more than, a, more than 2,000 years ago, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So uh, it's a question of degree. So the more uh, you can say that about a particular story, I think the more irreducible it is. And you've had uh, another story collection published, but this is your first publication in North America. What's that been like mm -hmm. for you? Um, well, it's been, uh, it's actually been uh, quite a lot of fun. Um, uh, you know, my, my publisher, Small Beer Press, uh, they're really wonderful. They, they do a lot for their authors. And, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, I've been, uh, I've gone to a reading. I've had my first bookstore reading, um, uh, ever, I think, for the public. And then also at, uh, read at a science fiction convention and so on. So it's really interesting to, be in the place where your story has come out because, you know, you can then directly interact with uh, people and, you know, get reviews sent your way and so on. Um, I should say, though, that uh, this collection is also going to come out in India because uh, the Indian audience is also very important to me. And, in fact, my first short story collection that came out in India, uh, it was, uh, it also came out from a very uh, wonderful small press and got a lot of positive attention because they, uh, the small press, Suban, put a lot of effort into it and a lot of passion into it. Um, but in a way, because I was here and all the buzz was going on in India, you know, I couldn't directly interact with uh, the buzz and the people. So it's certainly more exciting to be in the place where the story is coming out, that's for sure. And it has been a wonderful experience working with Small Beer Press. We've been talking with Vandana Singh, and you can find her book, Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories, in stores right now. Vandana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about the latest news from Barnes & Noble, so stay tuned. Hi, my name is Morgan Jerkins, and I am the author of This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, Feminist, and White America, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the latest news from Barnes & Noble. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. It's very nice to have you on the show again, as always. Our, our fan favorite, Jim Millia. So I feel <laughs> we should, uh, should introduce you. So uh, give, us, give us the scoop. What are these uh, third quarter numbers looking like? Uh, well, they come as no surprise, unfortunately. I think we uh, talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, that their uh, holiday sales were down about 6%. And that was disappointing. And then I don't think we've been on the air since um, a couple of weeks ago. They instituted a round of layoffs at the store level. Mm. They never put a number to it, but there's reports that it was as many as 1,800 people. Wow. And we do know that they were paying out about $11 million in severance to cover the downsizing. So um, this morning, or Thursday morning, they uh, reported that uh, results for the uh, the third quarter ended at the end of January were down about 5%, and that their earnings were also off, some of which was because of some one-time charges, but other than that, it, was, it, it still was down overall. So uh, pulling back, could you just give us a uh, slightly longer picture of BNN's earnings or not? Um, Well, you know, that's that's actually a good question, Mark, because, you know, they struggled, but they still managed to keep the bottom line, uh, you know, fairly, they're they're, they're keeping their head above water, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. But what's the most troubling part of this is, you know, still their sales aren't going up, and they were trying to put an emphasis on getting their sales higher, and and it's not working. So actually what they announced along with the earnings was uh, a turnaround plan. And also one of the more interesting parts of the turnaround plan is that they acknowledge that um, to hit their long-term goals, it will require a significant multi-year transformation. So they're still thinking long-term. None of this is about, and and next quarter, Barnes & Noble will will no longer be of this world. They're, They're still planning to turn things around and patch themselves up and be the big player that they've been. Right, and that's a, that's a very good uh, way to look at it, and I'm sure the publishers would be looking at it that way too. And you know, we hope they can. In the short term, um, what they talked about was focusing on stabilizing sales, improving productivity, and reducing expenses. Well, then they got off to a good start on the cutting expenses when uh, that layoff we just talked about they think can save them about forty million dollars annually. And what I heard are the concerns that I had heard over the layoff was that they seem to be letting go of more senior staff. Did they address that at all? Because some, some people were raising concerns there that they were losing more in knowledge than they were saving on the balance sheet. Um, they didn't direct that directly. Um, and in fact, uh, the CEO there, Demos Parnarsos, whose name I can't pronounce too well, I've talked about, you know, they brought in eight new executive level people in the last uh, few months, and he sees that as important in, in giving the um, 
giving the chain uh, a new direction. Well, not so much a new direction is going back sort of to the uh, to the old Barnes and Noble. And I'm pretty sure we talked about you know their new strategy as announced of you know six months or so ago was to put the focus back on books, and right. that is still the new strategy. So there's a there's a new new strategy. Right, right, right. And also what they talked about during the conference call there with analysts was that they're going to open um, five new prototype stores uh, in fiscal 2018, which starts uh, this May and ends next April. So what do they attribute this loss and this drop in sales to? I mean, is it a lack of readership or, or is it competition through Amazon? Well, what they usually stick to is... Uh, decline in store traffic, which could be attributed to, I think, both of those things. They kind of go out of their way not to mention <laughs> competition from Amazon, but I mean, anybody who looks at the market knows that, you know, um, how much market share Amazon has grabbed. So there, there's that. Um, less clear about that they're worried about a decline in readership, but, you know, it's all a physical retail is, you know, challenged in certain ways because of the growth of online. Right. And we talked about, you, you, we talked a bit about the, the layoffs and, um, Rose had just mentioned, um, you know, thoughts of possible, you know, senior, senior, more senior people, but who are these people who BNN, uh, laid off? Mostly, uh, from what we gather, it was, People in the stores at sort of the mid-level range, I think. Right. Um, it's not particularly clear. You know, they, they don't really uh, address it. Um, so, but it, they call it the new labor model, which will give them uh, more flexibility in, in the way they can um, get things done at the store. And they said, you know, we'll see how it works. They said that, you know, despite the layoffs, they, the whole goal is to um, let uh, their booksellers actually focus on the customers and not get uh, distracted by, you know, like back office uh, tasks. But we should talk about these new prototypes. Uh, I didn't mean to skip over. Yeah, let's uh, do that. Good. Because one thing, well, they point to sort of what, one of their problems is, Mark, and that the new stores are going to be about 14,000 square feet. They're old traditional stores, you know, they're super stores, which were such a revelation uh, 20 years ago, are about 26,000 square feet. And, um, you know, as they say, 26,000 square feet is just too big today. Right. Yeah, that's the sense that I've been getting, too, that, and uh, I feel like people who do go to physical bookstores are still interested in browsing, but less so that the, the ways that people shop online have kind of shifted the ways people shop in person too. And that it tends to be much more of a targeted go in, get the thing you want, get out kind of experience. And that's harder to do in a big store. Right. Yeah, that could, that could be true. I mean, they kind of pointed out that, you know, when, when customers in a store, they don't really know how big it is, <laughs> you know, 14,000, 26,000 uh, square feet. Um, and what they also said was that for a while there, you know, their non-book categories were doing pretty well, but things like music and DVD uh, had another bad quarter. So you got 
mean, they talked about you know scaling back those those type of offerings. If not, they didn't say they would get rid of them altogether, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Their gift and stationery uh, offerings, they said, could use a little refresh, which is why they brought in some new people. And that the only thing that's really not going to change in the new stores is the way um, the books are are offered. In that you know they're going to keep the the same assortment. You know the title panels should stay about the same, right. and that they want to be the the leader in books uh, once again. So that's where they're going to put put uh, put their efforts. Well, it's a very brave strategy, and uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how these prototype stores look. Did they say where they're going to open them? Um, the first store is the only one they mentioned. It will be opened late summer in Hackensack, New Jersey. Interesting choice. Wow. All right. So they're, they're so really... Mark. Um, yeah, I, close I to, yes, exactly. I'll, I'll go there and report on it. So they're really not aiming for big urban centers. These aren't like flagship stores. Um, well, I, I don't know if I would say that. I, I think they're, they picked Hackensack... Uh, well, it's good. They have it's going to be actually relocated from a store they already have, mm. um, right. and they tend to do these. I think in the New York area for a reason. Uh, you know, the execs are here and the publishing people are here, so they can go take a look at them. Sure. Um, you know, when they did that um, that restaurant store that they opened a few years ago, well, two years ago. You know, one of the one of the first ones was in Eastchester, New York, which is right. you know, about forty five minutes out of the city. But and they haven't said this. I mean they now have five of these kitchen stores, um, but they're not opening anymore. Uh, so mm-hmm. um you know the this was instituted by a different uh different executive team and they didn't come out and say that this was a bad idea, but <laughs> the, the the fact that they're not opening anymore and that they never really had a strategy for putting more of these bigger kitchen stores into existing stores. I mean, they couldn't put it, they couldn't put a restaurant in the stores they had. Uh, right. It's always kind of a dubious strategy. Mm. Well, I, I think it's probably wise then that they're turning away from that pretty quickly and not trying to double down on something that's not working. Right. No, I think that's totally right. And it's certainly the trend is, you know, smaller stores. I mean, most of the independent stores that open now are, you know, smaller or smaller. I mean, way smaller than this one. Sure. Um, so, you know, that is, that's where retailing is going. And they, you know, B&N points to, you know, well, we still have our omni-channel approach, which means you can come to the store, you can buy it online, or you could buy it through uh, uh, the Nook. Right. Okay, well, Jim, thank you very much for recapping that for us, and uh, we'll have you back in a few months to talk about whether it's working. <laughs> well, let's hope it does. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm just sorry the Hackensack won't have a wine bar, but that's okay. <laughs> can't, can't have everything. Uh, well, they'll still have a cafe, so don't good. worry about that. All right, that. good, good. All right, great. All right, well, thank you, Jim. It's always great to have you on the show. All right, thanks. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 